Hello, and welcome to episode 92 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. This episode, we're excited to welcome our friends Nate Cox and Andrew Milam from the podcast Two Beards, Please. You may remember that they were gracious enough to invite us onto their podcast back in December, and now they're gracious enough to join us here. We're doing things a little differently this time around. Instead of us picking the movie, we've asked Nate and Andrew what movies they'd like to discuss. So for this episode, Nate has picked M.A.S.H., directed by Robert Altman, and Andrew has picked Pollock, the 2000 biopic starring and directed by Ed Harris. M.A.S.H. essentially launched director Robert Altman's film career, as his unique style brought a flair that excited critics and audiences. The film earned five Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director, and one for Best Adapted Screenplay. Aside from introducing the world to Robert Altman, the movie spawned one of the most successful American TV shows of all time. While Pollock didn't quite make the splash that MASH made, Ed Harris's directorial debut was well-received by critics and earned two Oscar nominations and a win for Marsha Gay Harden as Best Supporting Actress. So, will Nate and Andrew still be able to enjoy their beloved movies after they get the Can We Still Be Friends treatment? Keep listening. All right, Nate, Andrew, two beards, please. Welcome to Can We yeah. Still Be Friends? Hey. Before we jump in, do you guys, just for the sake of our listeners, do you want to talk about what two beards, please, is and just talk about kind of what you guys do on your podcast? Sure. So we are two Midwest guys, such as yourself here, and our format is we pick a new topic for each of our shows, and we try to bring up stories from our lives, our past, our history, uh, that make each other laugh. We're, we're basically in this to, uh, to, to be entertainment. We want to, we want to make people mm-hmm. laugh, uh, along with us. This is something that we, we've been friends for almost 30 years. And this is something that happens whenever we get together in person, we sit there, we cut on each other, we tell stories, we make each other laugh. <laughs> and typically the whole room ends up laughing with us. So, uh, yeah, for sure. our, our mm-hmm. motto is, Laugh with us, laugh at us. Either way, you're still laughing and we're responsible. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, that, that you guys are a good fit for our podcast because we, we tend to kind of explore our lives through yeah. the movies we've watched and the way we watch movies. We, we didn't necessarily think it would be the case for our podcast, but it like kind of nostalgia and looking back has been a big part yeah. of what we end up doing when we talk about movies and, Nate and I don't have as long a friendship uh, as as you guys do, um, but we've definitely been through the big changes like fatherhood mm-hmm. and marriage, and like we've kind of uh, definitely packed a lot into. The, I bought a smoker today. You bought a smoker. Yeah, yeah, smoked his first pork, yeah. and now we yeah. have to all come over and try it. I heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm right. inviting myself. Yeah, over. <laughs> I'm inviting course, you. I'm inviting you to Nate's as well. <laughs> well you guys have been friends since college, right? Yeah. Well, well <laughs> okay. We, we I didn't mean to. I know. I didn't mean to bring that up. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's not a problem. It's okay. actually one of my. It's it's something I really like about our friendship that we were both so wrong about each other. <laughs> um, Nate and I met in college, and we thought the other person was a dick. Um, but that came that that was based on no interaction. No, really. No. We were we were in classes. We were in a film class together, actually, yeah. and. Um, he would say some stuff about a movie and I'd sort of be like, well, he's not wrong. But <laughs> like, and we would just kind of have just that. had grudges against yeah. each other for like no reason. Well, and I and really, we, I really don't know why. First impressions of just like looking at each other. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to like that guy. And so we ended up having mutual friends. Like our best friends were friends sure. with 
each other. And um, after college, I would be hanging out with my friends and Nate would be hanging out with his friends. And so we were like there together. We were both sort of like, like I guess we have to talk to each other. And when we did... like. Like yeah. forced intersections. Yeah. And when we yeah. did, it was like, oh, wow, this is really great talking <laughs> yeah. to you. Because you're not such Which, of a dick as I, get, I thought, huh? Right. And now now let me just say well, We could this. be dicks together. That yeah. way think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and let me just say that uh, we didn't get into our friendship, Drew, on your podcast, but that, that judgment is... Yeah. A, the story of my life. I, <laughs> yes, it is. I met Drew. I met Drew through our friend Jason. Yep. We were getting food at Wayne's, this like burger place, yep. and I just thought Drew was a bombastic. I don't know. Like I, well, I, I show up after a long day of work, right? I'm just like in grubby, like work <laughs> clothes. I just totally judged him. I was like, I just didn't know that Drew was like into literature and movies and everything that he's into. And uh, I was an English major and that came up and Drew yeah. was like, oh yeah, well, you know, what are you talking about? You know, he was asking these questions and I was sort of like, okay, this guy's just being polite. He's not going to know what I'm talking about because I'm You're an like, asshole. <laughs> and, uh, and I think you may have asked me like, what are you reading now? Mm-hmm. Or are you reading anything? And I said, like, I was reading Lolita yep. and Drew was like, oh, it's got one of the greatest first lines in in uh, history and just said the line and i was like oh okay and then like immediately after that we went to my parents house yep. where i was staying because i was in college and we played uh, lego star wars yep. in my bedroom for hours, <laughs> like, Man. For hours on xbox <laughs> and the rest is history let me just say i judge people and twice i've been wrong well now i want to know what you thought about me the first time we started talking here <laughs> Maybe well, maybe not. I, I, maybe not. I'll say this, <clears throat> Drew. Uh, Drew, I, I trust Drew's, Drew's judgment. That's, that's <laughs> so I assumed. I assumed. Well, uh, let me re the best about you. Let Nate. me re-ask that question after we talk about our movies yeah, tonight. Right. Yeah, yeah that's right. true. That's true. <laughs> well, then why that? Let's hey, get great into segue, it, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. So you each, we asked each of you to pick a movie that you wanted to talk about on the mm-hmm. podcast. Now we're just going to start with Nate. Uh, we don't really have a reason why, uh, but we are. Nate, do you want to do you want to say what your pick is? Sure. Originally, I wanted to do Spaceballs, but we reconsidered, and uh, I landed. <laughs> we landed on Mash, so I picked yep. Mash the movie. Through early morning fog, I see visions of the things to be, the pains that are withheld for me. I realize and I can see that suicide... 1970, Robert Altman directed, starring Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould. Mm-hmm. Uh, a whole um, lot of people. Tom Skerritt. A whole lot of people. That's, that's yes. Tom Skerritt, uh, yes, yeah. Definitely uh, tip of the iceberg there, but yeah. 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 Easy first question is, uh, why why MASH? Why, why did you want to talk about this movie? So, it has a little bit more depth than Spaceballs. Let's be honest here. Spaceballs is a kind of fun goofball <laughs> movie. It'd be fun to talk about, but not as much meat there to digest yeah. in, in a conversation. So There's uh, a lot of meat in Pizza the Hut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> much much more quotable, but uh, just MASH <laughs> is one of those movies where it's a, it's a classic. I don't remember the first time I watched it. Uh, I do remember watching it and thinking, whoa, this is way different than the TV show. Because I kind of grew up watching the TV right. show. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I actually watched MASH the movie until I was in college. So I was, this is probably in the mid-90s at this point. And the, MASH was already 20-some years old, MASH the movie. 
So I, I watched it and I don't know that I liked it at first. And I think I grew to like it over subsequent watchings because it was so different from the TV show. Very dark, very gritty almost compared to the TV show, but still funny in a lot of different ways. Were you a fan of the TV show? Or was I was a more fan of, like of the a, TV oh, I, show. I, yes. Okay. Yeah, they are, in some ways, it's like, how did they get that TV show yeah, <laughs> out right, of this movie? Right, Yeah. <laughs> in and some ways. Some of the, the, the char- they, they carry some of the characters over, uh, but I think the development of the characters in the movie, it, it's kind of a, a love-hate relationship with each of the different characters. You either love them or you hate them, and... I think that's kind of what they were going for. I think they tried to sugarcoat it a little bit more in the show to make everybody kind of Mm -hmm. likable, at least. Uh, Like the the Frank Burns character in the movie, the guy's just true evil. I mean, he's a bad guy. He's this, you know, self-professed Christian that ends up being the stereotype that none of us Christians want to be lumped in with as, you know, judgmental Mm -hmm. and hypocritical uh, versus in the, in the show, he's kind of just a kind of bumbling idiot that nobody really hates, but nobody really likes either all that much. Right. I saw the TV show first. I grew up kind of watching the TV show. My, my dad would watch it. I think I probably saw the movie later too, maybe in high school, but the thing that struck me about the movie and, and it did with the second, you know, I've seen it before, obviously in between, but this new viewing was, um, the stuff that's supposed to be funny. I almost felt guilty about like laughing about Mm -hmm. it because it's like, it's that sort of humor that points out all these like things that are wrong or these atrocities or like, I mean, it's a very, (laughs) it's a very bloody movie. Like there's, there's an incredible amount of like red blood, like just very stark. Mm -hmm. I mean, the movie's not very colorful except for all of this blood in the movie. And so when I watched it, <clears throat> I think that first time, but also when I watched it this time, there's just so many things that are, I think, a commentary on like war culture and that kind of stuff. But the stuff that's supposed to be like rip roaring funny. Mm-hmm. And when I would laugh, I would almost catch myself feeling guilty about laughing because it comes off as like it's it, it's sort of promoted as like this comedy. Yeah, right? I, I, I struggled with this, too, with this watching and. Uh, if you were to ask me before I rewatched it today, I, I don't, to me, it doesn't, it's not one of my top movies anymore <laughs> uh, for, for a few different reasons. <laughs> uh, when I rewatched it today, it's it's been a couple of years since I've seen it. And when I rewatched it, there were some things that, you know, I, I guess I had caught before, but just with everything else that's going on, uh, I, I wikied the movie and I found some quotes. Mm-hmm. I actually have a quote here by Robert Ebert, which explains exactly how how i feel and kind of align with uh and this is a quote from a review that he did for the movie when it originally came out um if the surgeons didn't have to face the daily list of maimed and mutilated bodies none of the rest of their lives would make any sense but none of this philosophy comes close to the insane logic of mash which is achieved through a peculiar marriage of cinematography acting directing and writing the movie depends on timing and tone to be funny. One of the reasons MASH is so funny is that it's so desperate. And I think that kind mm-hmm. of captures it at the end. It's it's funny because it's desperate and they're, they're in this awful period of time. I mean, the movie was kind of a take on the Vietnam War at the time, even though it's set in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. 
it, it's kind of the horrors of war and what you have to do to get through. I mean, you, you watch the movie back and, uh, it, it's, it's blatantly anti-Christian. It's blatantly misogynistic because, you know, of the, the time that this happened in our society, this is set in the fifties. Uh, there's race issues there. There's, uh, sexual orientation issues. So there's a lot of things going on there that are negative, mm -hmm. but somehow it still all works. And I, I don't know if it's meant to be a, a commentary on that. I think in some ways it is, but I think in a lot of ways, I, I don't think this movie gets made the same way today. Obviously you could say that about a million other movies, but yeah. But I think it's very true of this movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'll be honest and say that I, I find it kind of a, a bit of a relief that that uh, <laughs> that that you that you did have that realization watching it this time. Yeah. Um, now I saw Mash for the first time maybe 15 years ago. I didn't see it like when I was younger. I saw it when it was post college. I know that, but it was a while ago. It's been a long time. I saw it because I love Robert Altman. And I wanted to catch up with the movie that kind of put him on the map. I mean, this yeah. was, I think, his second movie, but like really, it was, the, his it was his first a, major one. It was a breakout movie. This was a breakout movie for, a, movie for uh, a lot of them, yeah. Because I, I actually really liked Altman from like Prairie Home Companion and Mr. McCabe mm -hmm. and Mrs. Miller, The Player. These were the movies that I had already seen of Altman's, and I was like, I hadn't even seen MASH. I should probably see MASH. Um, and when I watched it the first time, I was okay with it. But I didn't feel like it was top tier Altman, and I started. I sensed some of the things you were talking about, Nate. I think, but I think back then I kind of shrugged it off as like, well, you know, it, it was the time, or it was the. That's just sort of like a, a certain style of humor that's not for me, maybe. But it's a. Ch I think it is in this day a challenging watch more than a lot of classic movies you watch, and this is a bona fide classic. And so there's there's a lot of if you hear and read other people, and I, I, it's great that you brought the Roger Ebert. Oh, you can't go in. wrong with Ebert. He's, he's one we always kind of go back to. Like if we're ever sort of like confused or like I think I feel this way, but I'm not sure, we go to Ebert and like he clarifies it because. For, I think for both of us, we were like, well, what is salvageable from this movie, truth be told? Like like you said, Drew, what I know is supposed to be funny is like, oh, gosh, you're yeah, joking about that. I can't laugh about that, right? Right. Yeah. right. And so a, a lot of what I was reading and hearing as far as defense of the movie was sort of, it felt a little bit like revisionist history, sort of like, oh, no, like it was, you know, the first one to really be critical of Vietnam. So it was really trying to do, and it was saying all this stuff. And I was sort of like, I don't know if we can put that sort of sensibility on it. So to see that Ebert in 1970 was seeing this as that sort of thing, I can kind of say like, okay, so the things that I'm wrestling with, maybe the movie does want me to wrestle with it. And for me, the way it's asking me to wrestle with it is making me really uncomfortable, right. not necessarily challenging me yeah. in a good way. Well, when I watched you know? it, when I watched it today, this is the most uncomfortable I've been watching MASH the movie in, in the yeah. many times that I've watched it. And everybody grows and everybody changes over the years. And, and this is this is one where I don't know that I'll watch it again based, <laughs> based mm -hmm. on just how uncomfortable I was with it. I don't know. So... I think I would have to dig into it deeper to f feel if it's, is it a movie made during a certain time when it was socially acceptable to joke about those things and it's not anymore, which is okay. And so it's uncomfortable us to watch it. Or is it a movie that knew 
joking about those things was wrong, and that's why it did it to. I mean, it, I mean, it, it's it's some pretty blatant, like you know, sexuality jokes, and yeah, racist jokes, and misogynistic it's, jokes. It's I mean, misogynistic it's bullying too. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it might be a little bit of both because I think that. Yeah. It was made in, in 1970, which is the height of the, you know, the Vietnam War, the protests, the feminist movement, flower power. Uh, so you've got a lot of that social change going on mm-hmm. in the U.S. And I think there was a lot of that, you know, mocking of that 1950s lifestyle. It's, I find this movie kind of befuddling because in some ways it's very knowing. Mm-hmm. Like it knows it's critiquing Vietnam. It knows it's sort of a product of the counterculture. It knows exactly what it's critiquing with the, with the Frank Burns character. And it has so much contempt for the military order and yep. right. sort of tradition behind, uh, you know, Hot Lips Houlihan. But then the way that the movie wants to uh, get your yucks off of having them get their comeuppance, it's, I think, very unknowing right. in how that now kind of just looks like bullying. Even though right. at the time it might have looked like these were the people who were on the right side, yeah. you know, uh, the slobs versus snobs, yeah, yeah, sort right, right, of right. thing. To me, this this definitely had kind of an Animal House vibe. Even though Animal House came out years later, it's irreverent, um, I, I would, irreverent, yeah. exactly, yeah, irreverent. But I'm not against irreverence. Yeah, I think that right. there are things that there are certain structures that need to be challenged. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, what sure, I think you know. is 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 kind of apparent in in subsequent viewings is that they were taking aim at power structures of military, of religion, which there are absolutely, you know, valid critiques mm-hmm. of religion and mm-hmm. the the hypocrisy and that sort of thing. But they, at the same time, the way they were going about it, they were upholding other power structures that we have seen be so damaging, so much right. more damaging. The power structure of misogyny and sexism, the power structure of racism. And so the fact that like the movie, like you were saying, is knowing about what it's critiquing in the military, what it's critiquing about war, what it's critiquing about what we expect of people in war. You know, like you're right. a good surgeon in regular circumstances. You should be a good surgeon in war. You know, and right. they do that very well, showing right. just how horrific and kind of numb they had to become to this this scene. But then the way they go about critiquing it is through the power structure of oppressing women and kind of shaming women's sexuality and also shaming gay people. And yep. like, so, so that's for me where it is, where it's like, you're using other oppressive power structures to critique a power structure. And that, that just, it was, it was unsettling, I guess. And it's a, spe- me. to me, you can't necessarily fault the movie for what we know now. Right. But... It is especially hard to take some of that, um, especially, uh, you know, the, the, the treatment of women in this movie. Now that we know the long tradition and history of the military treating women horribly. Um, right. and, and if anybody is at all uncertain about this or wants to know a little bit more about this, there's a great documentary called The Invisible War mm-hmm. that will just have you in tears with just the way that women have been treated in the military. And not just, not just treated as far as like, you know, objectification and lack of respect. We're talking about full-on assault here. Right. And so when now when we watch this and we see the name she's given, Hot Lips, first right. of all. Yeah. I think at the time, mm-hmm. and maybe even on previous viewings, we would have seen it as funny when she comes in and gives the line, one of the lines of the movie, about this isn't a military hospital, it's an insane asylum. Right, yeah. This isn't a 
you don't do anything to let scurries out. What do you want me to do? Uh, put them under arrest. See what a court martial thinks of them drunken organism. If first they call me a hot lift, and you let them get away with it, and then you let them get away with everything. And if you don't turn them over to the MPs this minute, I, I'm going to resign my commission. God damn it, hot lips, resign your goddamn commission. Women are not given much in this movie, but Sally Kellerman gives an amazing performance right there. Oscar-nominated performance. I mean, but she sells the trauma. Mm -hmm. And then what you get, which I think the movie wants you to laugh at, is the commanding officer in bed with another woman saying, well, then resign your commission, you know? Again, one of like the iconic lines of the movie. And and the (laughs) thing is that... I hate to be a killjoy, but it really does kind of make me depressed because I imagine women that we know went to their commanding officers and said, sure. women, women in the military going to their commanding officers and saying, I am being treated this way. I've been raped. I've been molested. And what we now uh, ho- want to hold the military accountable for is why didn't those commanding officers do anything? Well, maybe we didn't do anything because we were laughing about it in MASH. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, not to get too heavy on it, right. but because because here's the thing, Nate. So I want to go back to really what this movie was doing that was groundbreaking, truly groundbreaking. And it was. We've gotten so used to movies critiquing Vietnam that we we can't really appreciate. I, I can't really appreciate how this movie couldn't even actually critique Vietnam. Right. Like right. it had yeah. to. It had to be about Korea. Right. And that beginning crawl where it's very clearly this is about Korea. Mm-hmm. The studio forced Altman to put that in. Because Altman wanted it to be kind of a nebulous war right. so that people could directly connect it to Vietnam. And so, like, in that way, it's groundbreaking, just critiquing something that's actually happening. It's also, and this is where this is where it's hard to even kind of put yourself into the place, but just movie-making-wise, yeah. it yeah, is. Yeah, the cinematography and the camera angles and the audio, the layering of the audio. That's an Altman touch, where people are kind of talking over each other. He did it so much later on, and so many other people copied that. That now I think we just don't even notice it. Yes, sir. I guess I better call Major Burns. Tell him we're going to have to hold a couple of surges over from the day shift out of the night shift. I'll put in a call into General Hammond and Saul. I hope he sends us those two new surges. We're sure going to need them. What was that, sir? I give everything to radar. What? To watch MASH and realize that would have been new. That for nobody audiences, did that before. Where yeah. people just talk at the same time over each other. I mean, this is just a this is just a totally different tone for a war movie. The other war movies out at this time are like Patton, Tora, Tora, Tora. Right. And that's not even including all the different like sort of gung-ho World War II well, movies. Well, some of the movies that they're the, advertising in the movie itself where they they're they're on the camp <laughs> yes, announcement. Exactly. They're now yeah. playing it. Mm. Interestingly enough, at the same time. Mike Nichols was directing Catch-22. And Mm -hmm. Catch-22, massive novel. Everybody was actually looking at the people making MASH, and they were like, you're crazy. Because nobody's going to pay attention to this movie. Catch-22's coming out. And Mike Nichols was a... Mike Nichols coming off The Graduate. Robert Mm -hmm. Altman was nobody. And MASH blew Catch-22 away. Audiences flocked to MASH. And Robert Altman put a sign over his desk 
caught 22, like, uh, <laughs> just kind of gl- gloating about the fact that, um, but I think it's, again, speaks to the way MASH was doing something differently, that people saw Catch-22, which in many ways was a, you know, kind of a technically better movie for 1970 and all that stuff. But because of the style, because of the sensibility, whatever it was, whether it was kind of mashing up this kind of college what was to come uh, Animal House humor with the anti-war, it spoke to something and it connected with audiences mm-hmm. at the time. It also had the improvisational feel to it. So much of this movie was improvised. Um, so there's a looseness to it. In a way, it's like whether I hate the movie or love the movie, there is something about MASH that yeah. just feels like it's doing something different. Well, and so here's the other here's the other thing about this movie is like it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Yeah, Best Picture, Best Director. Yeah, it won uh, Best won Supporting best Actress. Screenplay. Yep. But I mean, it's I would say it's been held up as a major cultural motion picture like uh i think i read somewhere the you know library congress has yep collected it as mm-hmm. one of the top 25 culturally significant top, movies top and, 100 you know it's i don't know how, i don't know what to do with that right especially i mean i had much the same reaction as we're all having when i watched it again like and you know i felt guilty about laughing at things and i found myself like you know clicking to see how much of the movies left, uh-huh. you know, like, am I going to have, how much more am I going to have to feel terrible about myself until I can be done? That's but kind yeah. of funny. Cause I did that with your movie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, we'll get there. We'll get we'll there. Get there right? <laughs> <Jeez. clears throat> so I don't know, like, you know, look, I'm it, to me, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it, but I don't know what to do about with the sort of information that it's been sort of lauded as this, well, this you is know, a one of the top 100 movies of all time type of situation. And then, you know, how do we now culturally and personally deal with sort of those sins of the past, right? Are we, mm-hmm. are we looking to erase them? Are we looking to recognize them and not yeah. let them continue? And, I, you know, this is a much bigger discussion, I realize, than a movie yeah. about. Yeah, we're, yeah. I, I well, we're, we are going to solve. We are going to solve this tonight. Yeah, we're going to get this. <laughs> oh, get good, great! <laughs> you can get the beers out now. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it. You know, it's not just movies. You know, there's music. The same thing in music. Yes. Like, I struggle with that because I do remember this movie. I do remember it when I first saw it. I do remember liking it. I remember, you know, as a younger person, it being sort of like what shapes you culturally like, you know, man, I loved those characters and I wanted to live in the swamp, you know, and I wanted Mm -hmm. to like make my own still. And I wanted to have the kind of friendships where you could just screw around with each other and, you know, right. And so Mm -hmm. I, what do you do with that now? Like, yeah, I don't know this, this, like you said, this is a conversation that's happening all over the place. And it's a conversation we've had about movies a lot. Like, um, you know, you could go as extreme as like the birth of a nation, which is, well, the movie that might be single-handedly uh, <laughs> responsible for the resurgence of the right. KKK, but just anything like this. Like, what do we do to say this movie broke a ton of ground? It opened a lot of doors to critiques of power structures mm-hmm. in Hollywood movies. It, it did a lot of things, but do we need it anymore? Like, has it done right. its job and it really reached a limit to the point that now watching it is actually more damaging than not watching, than what not, you know, not watching it. That like has its argument kind of been made, or, or does it have a place to say like the things that we're seeing in the military and have seen for a long time? This is one way that these yeah. kind of became normalized, you know, and we need to be aware of that. 
one of the ways that we do wrestle and struggle with this is doing exactly what we're doing right now. It takes a lot of courage, especially to you, Nate, to say this was a movie that I was one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to admit and watch it now and be like, uh, there's some things that I didn't see before. I think that some of that humility is lost, especially when we get into cancel culture debates where, okay, like before I, before I really stick my flag in here and, and, and try to defend this with, with all my might, mm-hmm. maybe I should re maybe, maybe I should rewatch it. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, right. Or, or maybe Ryan, I should reread it. Ryan and, too. you know, before I do that and, and, and that it's okay. It is okay. I think that there's nothing wrong with saying this movie still is special to me because right. it had a big impact in my life when I watched it. And I can say that and still recognize that later on, years later, I can rewatch it now and say, like what Ryan is saying, I don't know that I really need it anymore. Yeah. But that doesn't take away from the impact it had on my life previously. Um, it also doesn't take away from the impact it had on the culture previously. Uh, good and bad. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times on our podcast we just revisit movies that are. It's not even that they're like you know there's things that are insensitive, yeah. insensitive about them or terrible. They're just sort of like you watch them now and you're, they seem so banal. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I don't, I don't know why this thing was so important to me in my twenties, yeah. but <laughs> but it, it, but it was. It, it was very no, important to me in my twenties, and you know, and now I watch it and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what I saw in that movie. So let's <laughs> let's just make it clear. This was one of my favorite movies at one point. <laughs> right. Yeah. This wasn't my favorite. Not the favorite. Not movie. the favorite. And, yeah. and I don't know. Like, other than Spaceballs, I don't know that I could really pick out one you know real crystal clear but it would definitely have been at some point in my top five or ten for sure yeah for sure it would have been in mine too absolutely and ryan to answer i think one of the questions that you gave us uh ahead of the show to kind of prep for is would you fight someone for this movie and after rewatching it today no i i wouldn't Yeah, you know, if somebody wanted to shelve it and not watch it ever again, I I'd be okay with that. I I, I mm-hmm. don't. Again, after rewatching it today, with just the amount of problems that I see with it, I I just I can't justify defending the movie at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, Nate, let me ask you. So, what do you make now of that Ebert review? Because it's great. That is a great review. But do you still agree with it? Do you still agree that 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 Part of what makes it funny is the lunacy of it, I guess. Again, to, to the point that was made previously, I think, you know, I'm all for having fun at somebody else's expense if they're willing to have that. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I rip on Andrew all the time. And I only cry a little bit, so <laughs> yeah. okay. So uh, that, that's another But that's you're such another a funny crier. This is, is he says this movie kind of brings out the sadist in all of us, uh, yeah. which um, – I don't know that I want that part to come out anymore. You know, it's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just don't know that again, there's too many sensitive subjects in this movie that it could have been done differently. I think. And again, I'm so uncomfortable with this that I want to look up some more detail. I want to look at some interviews with the actors and, you know, the director, and I, I'm going to do some more research on this, and I'll, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> How does that sound? <laughs> well, let me tell you, I, I thought the same thing, Nate, where I was like, you know, maybe I just need to hear 
Altman's take on this, Donald Sutherland's take on this, Elliot yep. Gould's take on this. Like, what were they thinking when they made this? What and and I watched. There's a whole disc of special features on the Mash DVD. Mm. Two two documentaries um, that each of them are at least a half hour, if not 45 minutes long, with interviews with all those people: Altman, Sutherland, Gould. Um, and I kept waiting for it. I kept waiting for them to. And 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 that's why I mean by unknowing. I just don't think the things that offended us when we watch this now even occurred to them. They didn't uh, think when it, they made this movie. Yeah, yeah. They, did, they just did. I, that's and what it's I'm a blind spot. About. And not even at the time because these special features were made in 2000 for the DVD release. Oh, got it. So, okay. but but now that's still even 20 years ago. Right. right. Yeah. So even these special features I was watching were 20 years old, and even then, I don't think it occurred to them. And you heard so many in these special features. So many of these interviewees saying this movie is going to be timeless. This movie is going to be a movie you can revisit in twenty years, and it's going to be just as funny as it is today. And I'm like, whoops, whoop, whoop. Yeah, I don't think and that. Like, <laughs> I don't think it holds up. I, I honestly no. don't anymore. Yeah. And and I, and I what I would love is you know be, I, I'd love if Altman's not around anymore. Sadly, we can't ask him you know to kind of comment again on this. But you know, I I wonder sometimes like what does Donald Sutherland think about Hawkeye now? What does Elliot Gould think of Trapper uh, John now as, mm-hmm. as a character? Here's the other thing that occurred to me was, so what do you guys think is more famous, the TV show or the movie? I was wondering about that too. I think the, the TV show is. I would and agree. I think a, yeah. a lot of people liked, like, to say, so for you, Nate, to say that you liked the TV show, so you watched the movie and you liked the movie, I don't know how common that story is. No. Probably not as common, yeah. I feel like a lot of people like the TV show, maybe saw the movie and they were like, boy, I'm glad they made the TV show. Yeah. Well, again, um, after rewatching the movie, I'm kind of on that kick myself because there's a lot of characters yeah. uh, like Father Mulcahy. I-, I think that they made him kind of weak and ineffectual and just a bumbling character in the movie. And in the TV show, he was maybe a little naive, but he was – Kind and caring and strong. He yeah. was a strong character was, in the show, but very yeah. weak in the movie. He was more scandalized, yeah. like right. But yes. but again, not a, not in a moral compass way. Not in a way that says like you know this guy's got it. He we should all be kind of scandalized by what we're seeing here. Right. It was in like a look at this. You know, like weak. Yeah. Look uh, at this Joker. Yeah. yeah. This movie, I don't think it's talked about very much, and I wonder if it's been outshadowed by the. TV show so much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that maybe it's irrelevant now. Is it? I, I feel mean, like, yeah, I feel like now Mash is just an idea. It's not really yeah, a thing. Like right. you, when, well, now, when I when, when you think of Mash, I imagine the helicopters and suicide yep. is painless. Yeah, yeah. Yep. which that's like it. how many which, people know that's the name of the theme song right. to the TV Nobody. show? Of Mash. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I and and here's the thing: I never even watched the TV show. To me, I used to, it. Would they they would rerun it when I was a kid in Indiana. They would rerun it in the afternoons. Every day after mm-hmm. Magnum PI, at like no- so they, you heard the you so, saw the helicopters, so, you heard the music. Wait, wait, then, no, no, yeah. So I watched. I, I I used to watch Magnum PI. It was on at like noon. So that show probably holds up totally. Oh, fine. I'm sure Nothing, it holds. Yeah. Yeah. If any, well, I mean, if anything holds up as well as Tom Selleck's hairy chest. Yeah, right. But anyways, I would watch Magnum PI, and then the tone shift when all of a yeah. sudden you oh, hear yeah. that that song. That song just has such an ache to it that yeah. it's just, it immediately puts you into that mash mindset, yeah. you know, as soon as you hear well, it. And, and, well, the TV and, and I never even watched the show. The, you know. the TV show ended in 83. Right. So, yeah, you've been, oh, yeah. we all been watching it in syndication. I don't know. I may have seen some episodes when I was a kid, but. I really like the show, the TV show. I've watched 
in syndication over and over and over and over. Well, it ended up being um, number one show on our uh, great TV episode that we did. And so for me, I know I've seen the movie, but whenever I think of MASH, so when Nate mm-hmm. says, I, well, well, let's do the movie MASH, like I'm constantly pushing my entire TV viewing experience into what I think I remember about that movie consciously and mm-hmm. subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the break happens in the beginning when you see the helicopters and you hear the song, and all of a sudden there's lyrics to the song, right? <laughs> yeah. The- on the movie and you're like whoa like what the and then it's suicide is painless is the lyric and you're like ah um and and then i just like this whole entire entire view i just kept waiting for the laugh like where's the laugh and mm-hmm. my immediate reaction oh, my immediate track. note no like yeah. for me where do i you know oh, when am i going to start laughing got it right and so my first note after finishing the movie was like i don't i don't remember not laughing this much while watching match (laughs) (laughs) so what has changed right and i and then of course it's all those things we just talked about but i think it's you know is it just going to has it already and is it going to continue to just become irrelevant i think the one thing that we can all agree on that will remain as a high point of this movie is their choice of beer throughout the movie Matt no. Blue Ribbon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Greatest that will carry on. That will carry on. If you don't know, they did a beer episode where Drew tried to at least introduce some interesting beers with a mutual friend of ours, Ben. In blind taste tests, they thought they might be able to trick Nate, and he came down to PBR. I, well, um, I was able to not only pick it out of a lineup, but it ended up being my number one out of top a blind, yeah, lineup. Blind taste test. It's so embarrassing. You know what you awesome. like. That's you know what true. You like. So awesome. <clears throat> I well, if I had to guess, my my feeling is what's groundbreaking about this movie will kind of be sadly forgotten because it's just been copied so much that sure. it's hard to pinpoint it back to Mash. Yeah. And then the other, the humor of it and the actual movie itself uh, might just kind of fall by the wayside as people just don't laugh at it as much anymore. Yeah. Yep. I would agree. But but another thought that crossed my mind as I watched this uh, was. Those operating scenes, yeah. still, yeah. those have weight to them. And that, to me, is where both the satire and weight work together great. Because yeah. you see what these surgeons had to do just to get by, mm-hmm. to right. kind of numb everything, to get through this. And, and you're, you know, it was said early on about how much blood there is in this. And, of course, that probably, I, don't, I didn't watch the show, but I'm assuming there wasn't nearly there's as much n- blood in the show. There's, like, none. Yeah, it's pretty right? bloodless. But right. this, this has a lot of blood in it. And I thought to myself, as I watched them just kind of have normal conversations, joke around here and there while they're, like, sawing bones and blood spurting everywhere, but it's just not phasing them, is how much did this lay the groundwork for every single doctor ER yeah. surgeon show that we see on TV where the show is about the relationships of the doctors yep. and the actual operations themselves are secondary. Yeah. I think without MASH, there is no ER. There is no Gray's Anatomy. There is, you know, because that's the tone all those TV shows yep. take is we've got to, so the surgery is almost just sort of happening in the background. It, it, it might as well be, you know, guys working on a construction site. And the conscious choice that MASH takes and all these shows would take later is to actually avoid the drama. The drama that is there would be, is this person going to survive? Can we get this person back to life? MASH doesn't give one crap about whether or not these people survive. Because because one thing to its credit, for the characters it cares about, it does a really good job of helping you get to know them, even though they're they're not great Mm -hmm. people to get to know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know? 
Well, and so I was thinking because if if you're gonna if anybody's gonna make a case for the knowing satire of this movie that this movie isn't like I've heard people kind of make this this claim and I don't buy it, but that this is a this is a movie about how these circumstances broke these people and all of their misogyny, all of their everything, the way they bully, the way they this is coping for dealing with this sort of thing, and the only way that has any sort of weight is the violence, is the gore, mm-hmm. and. The way the movie does it is there is no warning when those scenes come. We might just right. cut to the middle of a surgery. Yeah. We might just see a gory body being carried across. The camera might follow it for a little bit and then co- go back. So the way that the movie interjects it and puts it in our face, like so often there, we're kind of watching the zany action in the background and then in the foreground comes casualties. Right. And so because it's so visceral, I, I've got this like – okay, I can kind of see that they're doing that. And is it that the movie thinks we're smart enough to connect those dots? Or is the movie not really connecting those dots fully is kind of where my question lies. And I think the show has, I I don't know if people talk about this movie and they think about the show or whatever, but MASH definitely, the thing that people kind of remember about MASH the TV show and I think MASH the movie is the coolness of Hawkeye and Trapper, right? right? At the end of the day, Trapper and Hawkeye are such the heroes of this movie that I don't think that we're supposed to be judging their behavior or or having compassion for their behavior. You know, saying like, oh, these are broken men. This is like, oh, these men aren't broken because they're able to like do these sorts of things. That feels like it's more the message. They're cool. So, kind of so there is yeah. a scene, there is a scene where it's extremely awkward and you just see a glimpse of some of that brokenness that you talk about where they're in Seoul and they take Hojan into the doctor and right. the, the film crew's going by, hey, soldier, and they talk to tra- uh, Hawkeye at that point. And they, you want to say hi to your mom? Oh, my mom's dead. Where are you? Where are you from? Uh, a mash outfit at the front line. No, I'm in your hometown. But, uh, on the East Coast. Have you been wounded yet? Uh, yeah, a little. A, a slight... Uh, Well, my mother's dead, actually, and she's deceased. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, I'd like to say hello to my father if I could. Yeah, 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 fine, fine. Hi, Dad. And that was one of the most powerful scenes, to me anyway, watching this the second time as I'm trying to pull nuggets out that I could still right. cling to. As, well, you know, yeah. but, but I you're right. There, the movie. there were these scenes that just would kind of pull me in temporarily and I'd yeah. be like, oh that's something special that's something different that's a level of emotion that, <laughs> that yeah. the rest of the you movie doesn't seem to right. carry yeah. Yeah. yeah you know but yeah then it's outweighed by you know like a character thinks he's gay so he's going to kill himself <laughs> right. and like right. they, yeah. they, they they kind of cure him the, this actually that scene as horrible as it is is has one of the funniest lines in the movie where they're all walking by him as he's laying down uh boone mm. the, the young mm. kid as he's walking by he looks down at him and says you're throwing away your whole education. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good line. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I really deep down want, I want to like watch it enough to find where I can justify how awful it was. And I want to, I want to believe that like all of these people involved in the movie, Robert Altman and Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould and Robert Duvall and, People whose others movies I've watched and have like, you know, have shaped. Have been meaningful for you, yeah. I want to go in there and be like, they knew what they were doing. 
Like that's what I want the final result to be. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I, don't I just don't know that there. that's, I don't know that I'm going to ever get there. And that's yeah. to me, that's, that's hard for me. You know how, yeah, like the stuff you watch and the stuff you listen to, at least for me, like it becomes who you want to be, yeah. right? It shapes right. who you exactly. become. And so like, man, the swamp and Hawkeye and like, it was like a goal, you know, like you yeah, wanted right. to be as cool as them. And so it's, it's like a grieving period. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it is. When it you is. watch it, it now is. and you're like, ah, oh, it's awful. Yeah, there's like a guilt with realizing things later, grieving things that you used to love, and also sort of like a how could I not have seen that earlier right. for me? I'm talking yeah. about for me. It's like it's a constant reminder of like, man, like I was – I was so sure that that movie was great. I was yeah. so sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, and it's just it's just this acknowledgement of like, you know, you have to hold those convictions a little loosely yeah. as you listen to other people who don't think the same way you do about yep. that. Yeah. And it's know? one of those things where history brings us perspective, right? And you you'd like yeah. to think yeah. that as you age, you know, I'm approaching my fifth decade here. Uh, as you age, you tend to get wiser with age. That's, and I know that's not always the case and that's not Hopefully, always yeah. true, <laughs> but, uh, I, I like to think that I am not so set in my ways that I can't learn something or can't look at mm-hmm. a movie like this, where I don't know how I justified enjoying, you know, different parts of this movie in the past. I, I just don't know. And, you know, totally. and you don't necessarily have to, you just you say like, know. okay, you, yeah. I know better now. I guess, right. like, you know, yep. because well, I know to, to, to Nate's point, um, I knew watching it before that there were troubling spots. I knew that I knew they were there, but for whatever reason, I was able to justify, you know, Hey, this is still a great movie in spite of those. And now I, I'm, I'm not there anymore. I've come to realize that humor doesn't remove the harmful impact. <laughs> like, I know that yes. sounds like really, but that's, that's so often the justification of anything like that. It's just a joke or I'm sorry. Yeah. I think that's hilarious. And I've come to realize like me thinking it's funny doesn't make it not racist or not misogynistic. All that right. means is I thought a misogynistic joke was funny. <laughs> like yeah. that's all that right. that means. Yeah. I think it's fine. I think it's of course fine. It's great to be able to look at a movie like MASH and be like, oh, wow, I am a very different person from the person who watched this movie X number of years ago. And I think that generally that attitude isn't welcome by anybody. Like, there are people who will say, like, if you change your mind, you're being canceled. Like, oh, what? You're weak. Yeah, like, oh, you're just just saying that because whatever. But then there are also people who will say, like, you should have known. And, like, you don't don't get to repent of that now. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, right? Right. And so I think when we're talking about cultural mindsets, I think that's a prevailing cultural mindset right now is that if you learn new information about how you, what you are saying or how you're acting or what you're enjoying is impacting people, there's not really a lot of people who are allowing you to change your mind on that. Like right. you're either held to your old beliefs or you shouldn't change your mind because that's weak. And mm-hmm. I think that's something Nate and I have been learning a lot um, yeah. through various avenues, but also our conversations is and our conversations has been really helpful to say it out loud and put it in a recording to say like, <laughs> I used to think this and now I don't. And here's what I'm learning about it. <laughs> and really focusing on ourselves and saying, yeah. here's what I'm learning about it rather than I can't believe they ever did this. And I can't move <laughs> <laughs> when yeah. it's like, right. you fucking laughed at that movie. <laughs> like for well, the first 10 times you watched for, it. For, for, for you know, me, like, it's yeah. here's where, here's what it boils down to for me. 
I may never watch this movie again. I may never recommend this movie to somebody again, but I'm also not going to go tell somebody you shouldn't watch this because sure. it's offensive and, and it's not appropriate or, you know, if somebody else enjoys the movie, okay, fine. If you want to enjoy the movie and if you want to, that's on you now, but I'm choosing to put this one on the shelf now and, and kind of let it gather dust. This feels like a good place to stop, actually. Um, why don't we go ahead and switch gears then? Let's, uh, I think that sounds like a good place to end our conversation on MASH. And uh, how's about we talk a little bit about your movie, Andrew? Do you want to yeah. unveil what your, your choice is? So now that we spent an inordinate amount of time on Nate's terrible movie, we can just say, well, Bollock's a great film, and we can just end the podcast. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys, for being here. <laughs> Enough said. If by great you mean shit, yeah, I agree. With oh, you. ouch! <laughs> Maybe you guys should have a movie podcast. Yeah, yeah. well, we've, we've we'll, been down uh, that we'll, road, we'll, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out so good. Jackson Pollock, I'm Lee Krasner. I thought I knew all the abstract artists in New York, and I don't know Jackson Pollock. What do you think of Picasso? It has been De Kooning. He's all right. He's learning. <laughs> What's she doing here? You need to get cleaned up. I have just climbed up and down five flights of stairs. I am Peggy Guggenheim. They're sorry. My God, and you're drunk. No. No. What you're doing is the most original and vigorous art in the country. We're broke. You just keep at it. I'm keeping at it. Don't tell me to keep at it. So I picked Pollock, directed by and starring Ed Harris. See, here's the first point in contention. I went into this thinking, I always confuse Ed Harris and Ed O'Neill. So was... I look into this, I went into this thinking <laughs> it was going to be Al Bundy as the main character. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I, I was probably disappointed movie. with that. And to you, start the problem off here is that you were disappointed that it wasn't, and it was Ed Harris. That's, that, yeah. That's yeah. the well, you first know, the, problem. I, I will say the later scenes in the movie of, of Pollock yes. might have been pulled off better. Al Bundy. Yeah. Yeah. A little more Al Bundy, yeah. Well, now, yeah. Drew, I, I don't want to cut off your intro here but i'm going to i feel like this is a movie that you've kind of mentioned to me frequently yes. like yes when's the last time you saw pollock i really want to talk about pollock so yeah. is this a is this a favorite movie or is it just one that you really want to talk about um i mean i i guess i would consider it a favorite movie i don't know, it's sort of a movie that i i really like and for a number of reasons and i forget about it every once in a while and then I sort of rediscover it so i first saw it when it first came out i lived in cincinnati i was going to grad school we lived right off the square of this little town called Marymount. We had a theater right on the square. It was a one screen theater. And so I went and saw it when it first came out with my wife and I just really fell in love with the movie. And I had, I mean, I'd known who Jackson Pollock was as an artist and I had studied his art and, you know, and sort of knew about him. And I was in grad school and I was newly married and I went to grad school for poetry, which I know is ill-advised, but <laughs> I did it anyway. Um, so, and so I go ahead. Having heard and read your poetry, I understand why you, you understand? like this movie. <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah, for sure. I, again, I, I joke. Yeah. I, 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 I say no. I can understand. It, it wasn't a terrible movie, but it just—it's not something I would watch more than the one time I did. Sure. When I was in grad school and newly married, I was really working on sort of these, what does it mean to be an artist ideas? Right. And so, you know, do you have to be crazy to be an artist? Do mm. you have to drink a lot to be an artist? Do you have to have people around you that agree with you to be an artist? Do you have to have people around you that enable you to be an artist? You have to and rebel so, against every rule in 
in right the or art yeah form. do you have to rebel against everything to be an artist can you live like that you know two and a half kids dog in a picket fence life and still be a relevant artist mm-hmm. you know i was going to grad school so like that right there is the death knell for an artist right so <laughs> yeah. like all of these things and here comes this movie about an artist who i respect and as a movie about his life it sheds all of this light on his mental state and his relationship state and how the the art that I fell in love with was produced when he was essentially sober and supported. Right. Mm, and yeah. so it really like, and like we said before, a lot of movies and songs and books shape who you become, you take on that persona. And so this persona of Jackson Pollock was very like interesting to me. Right. And it was also like something that sort of was answering questions that I had about myself and, and directions that I wanted to go and and so on and so forth. And then I've always been interested in sound, right? Audible things, the sounds and the way words work. And so this movie has so much silence in it Mm. that is so permeating and so like intentional and that also was a huge thing that attracted me to this movie was the lack of sound and then right. how that relates to the character. So those are sort of my initial viewing mm-hmm. and things that I go back to over and over and over. And I got to say, seeing it again, um, like I just remember all of that stuff. It just came flooding back in mm-hmm. all of those. Like my favorite scene is when um, Pollock and Krasner like sort of meet and go back to her apartment and then they're in that, the shot down that hallway and they're Mm going to go, you know, to bed Mm -hmm. and just the absolute silence and intimacy and weirdness in that scene. Like I remember when I first saw that scene and I, all of that stuff came flooding back and I just really liked this movie. Mm. And for a movie that does a lot with silence, that scene does a lot with darkness. I think what the, I think what the silence allows for is it allows the full grasp or uh, exploration of, his neuroticism and the demons that he was wrestling with. Mm-hmm. I think it allows the audience to experience that. And I think the beef that I had with it was that it seemed to jump around an awful lot. I just felt that there are pieces that were missing and that weren't explored well enough to completely develop the the, the characters. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just read, and this doesn't surprise me that this was uh, Ed Harris's, you know, dream, pet project you know his you know i've got artistic license this is my you know this Mm -hmm. usually when that happens they never turn out well (laughs) but (laughs) i'm not saying that they they happen in this case but i'm not i watch movies for a different reason uh typically uh so this if i would have saw it on the shelf back in back in 2000 i don't i don't think i would have picked this anyway well i don't i I think it has to do with the connection that i have with the movie that you know and those sorts of personal connections are really tough too. So almost like for Ed Harris, this this project was so personal that, yeah. they, that there can't be any sort of objective distance he can take from it. That might be right. something that you've got. You you might not yep. be able to take some objective distance from this. Sure. I, I, I'll agree with Nate. I do feel like um, I don't quite know what the organizational structure was for the editing. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was a little unclear to me. And I'm I'm with you. There were times where I was like, oh, okay, we're... <laughs> It's later now. We're here now. And yeah. what was what yeah. was his relationship with his mother? And 
Peggy Guggenheim, he's meeting with her and now all of a sudden he's in bed with her. And I just, I, I just don't, it jumped around and it didn't appear to be organized in a way. And it was missing parts that in my mind would have been critical to the flow of the movie. Yeah. Like he, he talked about being four F from the, from the war. Okay. Mm-hmm explain that a little bit you like know, was that it, mental like that they they saw yeah something? yeah well they he did say later on that it was you know he, he was too neurotic yeah. yeah so they mentioned it later but it just it kind of left that whole part out i that, that being said i do enjoy this movie but i will say that it is it does feel jumpy i think i think i'm gonna side a little bit more with andrew on this where that that really doesn't bother me i feel like this movie is it's not it's it's not your typical biopic and i think it's to its credit Mm -hmm. it's not going to go back and do the flashbacks of this was the childhood of jackson pollock and then you know and then this is what made him move to new york and greenwich village it's not concerned to me this movie is concerned with the relationship between him and lee krasner and everything kind of centers around that it only establishes pollock enough to get you to krasner and then it Mm -hmm. only seems concerned with Pollock up until Krasner leaves. And then it's like, well, we do have to show how he died. Right. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that's true. And, 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 and that's something I missed the first time I watched this. Now, my history with this movie is I watched it just in college. I didn't see it in the theater, uh, but it was pretty close to after its release. It was just a, a movie that my roommate at the time, uh, Andrew, who calls into the show, also named Andrew, uh, he just had it on DVD. And I was like, oh, I really like Ed Harris. And you know, being from the Chicago area, very familiar with Jackson Pollock. Uh, with the, if you go to the Art Institute, you see right. some of his work, and they were always some of my favorites there. I can never explain to you why. They, I just always liked them, and so then I just saw, oh, the Ed Harris made a movie about Pollock, and he looks a lot like Pollock, <laughs> and and so I watched it, and I really liked it. But I will say, it had been a long time uh, before this rewatch. And I think I always kind of just saw this as an Ed Harris thing. And this time around, I was like, no, this movie gives so much attention to the character of Lee Krasner and Marsha Gay Harden's yeah. performance of her. And then, I, like I said, how it strips out so much, which I think you could interpret that as being jumpy and all over the place and leaving a lot out. I think you could also see it as a way that the movie focuses in on the themes that it's really trying to get at. I, I, I guess I had never put it, thought of it so succinctly as how you put it about how his greatest pieces were made when he was supported and when he was sober. The movie, I think, goes to great pains to show that, that all, all credit of that goes to Lee Krasner. Yeah. You know? Right, yeah, yeah sure. I agree with that. Definitely. I, I think one of the things that it lands on, and I think this ties back to your, your comment about having these at the um, Art Institute in Chicago, uh, I think he struggles with, wanting to be rich and famous with his art and also just doing art for the sake of art. And I think one of the key lines comes when he's talking about the critics and the people that are critical of his art. How do you respond to some of your critics? They have said a mop of tangled hair, a child's contour map of the Battle of Gettysburg, cathartic disintegration, degenerate. What do you say to that? He forgot baked macaroni. (laughs) Well? Well, People would just leave most of their stuff at home and just look at the paintings. I don't think they'd have any trouble enjoying them. It's like looking at a bed of flowers. You don't tear your hair out over what it means. 
you, you get these people that get real douchey about art where they're, oh, this, uh, I see this, I see that. You know, I'm hoping that's a true Jackson Pollock quote. <laughs> I'm going to have to mm-hmm. look that up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I, I appreciate that style of art that much. Um, but because of that line in and of itself, I think there's some stuff that he's done that I am kind of drawn to and uh, wouldn't mind checking out. And it's interesting that the type of art that he ended up becoming famous for, uh, I think that very much follows what that quote talks about. Because when he was doing stuff that was recognizable to people, they were picking it apart. Well, why are you doing that now? Like, what are you doing that for? And all that stuff. And he kind of just wanted to say, like, I want your question to be irrelevant. I want to show you something that you think has no intention, but I did very intentionally. He wanted to do something that people have no frame of reference for to be able to evaluate along those sort of like arty uh, lines. But, you know, I'll yeah. say one thing that I really appreciated this time around when, when I watched it earlier, that, uh, that was definitely what resonated with me was what you're talking about, where it was like, just enjoy the painting or when she's trying to like deconstruct his painting or explain it. And he just says, I'm just painting, you know? Yeah. And I think, you I think that, do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used that line in my Ooh. master's defense, by the way. <laughs> it didn't go as well as it went for Pollock. <laughs> Ed Harris isn't making a movie about you. But here's the thing. I don't deny that that kind of may have been how Pollock saw it. And that's also helpful for people who just, like me, when I was like, when I would go to the Art Institute and I would see Jackson Pollock paintings and I'd be like, I don't know why I like right. this. I just like it. Well, good. Because that's, that's Jackson, all you're supposed Jackson to Pollock that's is, what that's he wanted, what he wants. Right? Jackson yeah. Pollock is validating that. Okay. Yeah. That you can just enjoy art for whatever reason. You don't have to have a reason to enjoy art. It doesn't have to come from any place. But at the same time, I really appreciate that this movie says, even if that's where Pollock was coming from, he still needed Lee Krasner to contextualize yes. everything he was doing. He would yeah. not have had the success he had without her. And part of what she did for him was, frankly, bring that douchiness. Like, she, she brought yeah. it to him. Like, she basically helped Pollock understand his own work, even if yeah. he didn't want to. And if he didn't want to understand his own work, then she was going to help other people understand his work. She was his translator. You know, exactly. And he needed yeah, that. Right. And, and, and in a way, I kind of appreciated that this time around, that what she mm-hmm. says also has truth, which is, mm-hmm. this doesn't come from nowhere. What's this? I see the head, the body... This isn't cubism, Jackson, because you're not really breaking down the figure into multiple views. You're just showing us one side. What is this? Free association? Automatism? I'm just painting, Lee. But what you're doing, Jackson, don't tell me you don't know what you're doing. Are you experimenting with surrealism? Is this a dream? Even if it's a dream, it's still what you see. It's life. You're not just randomly putting paint on the canvas. You're painting something. You can't abstract from nothing. You can only abstract from life, from nature. I am nature. If you only work from inside yourself, you'll repeat yourself. Why don't you paint the fucking thing? 
even if you think you're just painting from your subconscious or writing music from your subconscious or I'm just writing poetry from my subconscious, it is what it is. It's just coming out of me. No, mm-hmm. no, there is there are so many things it's, informing yeah. that. Yeah. And that if you want to be successful as a professional in this business, you may have to be able to recognize that. One of the other things that I, I loved about, I mean, I fell in love with that character, right? And Marsha Gay Harden, in fact. You know, let's be honest. I mean, I fell in love with her too. Yeah. This movie, but one of the most poignant scenes is he wakes up. She's already up in the, you know, in the kitchen or whatever. And he like, you know, is dragging himself through the house and putting on a coat and putting on a hat to trudge out to the studio. And she is like buttering his bread and like hands him this cup of coffee. And like, to me, when I first saw this movie, that kind of like partner support, was a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. Because as someone who is planning on having this art be a big part of my life, um, to recognize that level of need and just basic support was a huge eye opener Mm. because I think as you are developing yourself in your art whether it's music or art or writing or whatever, you, it's this very, like very solitary thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And you, you think that you have to like hold yourself up in a dark space and do it alone. And then to see, right, right. And then to see like, you know, I mean, I know it's a movie, but to see that level of support was a big deal for me. And I think it really was a powerful movie for me. And it remains sort of one of those pieces of art that I go back to, to like sort of check myself a little bit. Hmm. I don't know if that's the right word or not. They kind of ground you. It's just been you. a really yeah. powerful movie. Yeah. Well, right. I think, it's been a really grounding movie. I yeah. think one of the things that this movie does really well is show the grind of our, our artistic pursuits, mm-hmm. that it is a job, that you have to, whether or not you're inspired, whatever that means or right. not, you have to put on your coat, you have to walk out to the barn, and you have to paint for eight hours that day. And to get yeah. that done, you need, he needed somebody who... Yeah made his breakfast for him, you know, like who said, like, you're going to eat this morning. Here's your coffee. I'm going to bring you your food that like even somebody like Pollock or any kind of any of those really kind of groundbreaking post-war American artists, it really demystifies that idea that these were otherworldly inspired people. It was somebody else who was trying to make sense of what does this world mean after what we just saw happen in Europe and in the Pacific. And he did it through his artistry, and it was a grind. This isn't the only movie to do that, but it certainly is a strong example of what it means to be an artist. And it's not inspiration. It's not pure talent. It's it's a support system. And so he didn't have the capacity to take care of himself personally or professionally, yeah. and he had Lee to do that. A lot of artists have to do all of that themselves. They have to mm-hmm. handle right. that business side of it. They have to go to work every day. Um, I know a, a poet, Anis Mojgani, said, "Like, you know, I shower, I get dressed every day. Like, yeah. I, I work at home, but I can't, I can't do it. Right. I, I go to work. I have to write poetry for eight hours because that's my job." I think that was made clear the juxtaposition between her as the wife and Jennifer Connelly as the girlfriend. Mm-hmm. where she was just kind of a hanger on at that point and mm-hmm. not really providing him 
any support other than you know physical support, right? And um, ego, ego, like you know. yeah, right. Yep. She fed in the demons that were driving him, and mm-hmm. the difference between those two characters was pretty stark and made was made pretty clear at the end there. I've been out to the Krasner Pollock house. It's a pretty fascinating little area. Hmm. But when he started drinking again and lost his support, I mean, it was just like, you know, it was like turning off a switch. So I think the movie, the movie does do a good job of showing that juxtaposition, but I think it does it the best. Nate, what Nate said is because you don't see Lee right? when he's falling apart at the beginning and when he's falling apart at the end, she is not there. Yeah. There must have been something just in the air in Hollywood at the time or something a lot of men were dealing with uh, because there were a lot of movies like this about the women behind the brilliant men. Uh, like yeah. you had uh, you had Jennifer Connelly actually uh, in, yeah, in A Beautiful, beautiful Mind. mind. Right. Um, you yep. had uh, Laura Linney behind Liam Neeson and Kinsey. You had now yep. this movie. That's like three movies all within like the early 2000s that were and, and they're all that same kind of post-war yeah. period. Yep. Jennifer Connelly won Best Supporting Actress for Beautiful Mind, too, I think. Although I think the shortcoming of these movies, and I think Pollock does actually maybe one of the better jobs, uh, is it doesn't fully show the sacrifice that these women make. They, obviously, there's a sacrifice yep. made when you see the, the toil and just the, the shit that uh, Lee Krasner has to put up with. But it's not till the end title sequences that you realize she also put her entire career on hold. Right, yeah. yeah. The ending title cards talk about how she only resumed painting after Pollock died and created some of her most famous work after that. So there's also... And she also dedicated the rest of her life to his legacy. I mean, she didn't stop... The partnership was still there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, so I think it continues Well, let's be fair, she benefited from that too. She was cashing in on that. It wasn't just... I don't think that was completely altruistic. I don't know. I don't... She stopped painting. I don't know that she was cashing in on his... Yeah, but she saw. But she was supporting him. She saw opportunity. No, not at that point. I'm talking after he passed. She maintained the estate. I see. Yeah, and lived at that small little house. But the money, like the the acclaim and the money that was ended up made on his paintings, was was going to her. Is that the because she controlled the estate? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I mean, she also was fighting. She's got a lot of credibility in that. The way that she was fighting for him when you know. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm not she saying she like, didn't deserve it. I'm just saying it wasn't you know completely just because she wanted to support his good name in the end or what oh, yeah. his legacy looked like. Oh, she I, had some skin in the game there too. Yeah, I was saying that I think the partnership was there, but it's a. I mean, I'm, I'm talking a business partnership. That kind of speaks to Krasner's just love of the craft. That she could acknowledge yeah. that somebody was doing something better than she probably better felt like her. she could. I'm not yeah. going to say she couldn't do it, but you know, right. she felt like she couldn't have attained what Pollock was doing at the time. And so for the love of the craft, uh, decides to kind of put her own career on hold and see how much she can nurture this thing. I mean, how many times in the movie does she say you're a great painter? She's not just blowing smoke up his ass. You know, <laughs> she actually believes this and... Right. I think that she wants him to paint. She's screaming at him at one point to paint. And you, it does it yeah. does beg the question, you right. know, how much of what's driving her is just the love of the art and how much of it's the love for him because there is sort of that that yeah. that hard to watch scene where you can see it both ways. He wants a child. And mm-hmm. it, she's like I'd be out yeah. of my mind she's to like, give no you a child. No way, yeah. not bring yeah. the child into this level of crazy, right? Yeah. 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 I think one of the 
one of the underserved characters in this movie was uh, Jeffrey Tambor's character as mm. the, the critic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He did a great job. He was unlikable in spots, which I think he needed to be. Right. And very, very likable and uh, kind of in his corner in other spots. So Again, the, it, it's, I think, a good representation of the nuts and bolts of art that yeah critics are one of the worst parts of art but you got you need them too you know and like that give and take of it's not fair that an individual can be a tastemaker but right you need a champion as well who's got some clout you know you can't take your your wife's word only goes so far and your (laughs) word only goes so far um and i think yeah you're you're right jeffrey tambor did a great job of Somebody who knew that, knew that that was his role. Like, yeah, I'm ruining yep. art, but I'm also getting people who need to be seen out there. And am yep. I doing that at the expense of other people? Absolutely. But I'm only yep. one man, and I only have so many artists that I can champion. If I champion everybody, that's not going like, to fly. Um, and that's, just, that's a really kind of interesting angle that this movie takes that I don't think a lot of other movies do take. And it's, it's, it's that ability to, to balance that nuance, that... that Pollock had an eye, had something that was different, but it was also a grind. You know, it wasn't just that he was this inspired painter who, you know, uh, you know, struck uh, gold every time he went out and painted. And uh, critics, critics are a negative aspect of it, but critics also have a role in bringing artists to the public consciousness that wouldn't normally be seen critics and benefactors right you know? yeah like peggy exactly. guggenheim's character i yeah. mean how many movies would even think to include that character right <laughs> you know right. the right. person who's it's disjointed this, as you know? it was yeah yeah I think having her because everybody's heard of guggenheim right right yeah the, the name guggenheim yeah even if that's not exactly how it went or if there were like a, a couple benefactors or something just kind of boiling it down to a recognizable name or something there are ways that this movie is streamlined enough to be able to follow it um, also, uh, Bud Court. Bud Court. Bud Court in both movies. The consistency. He's our, yes, he's our, he's that's our, the, that's he's our the... connection between Mash and uh, <laughs> the through Pollock. line. Yeah. He, he, uh, <laughs> fittingly, he's the go between between Peggy Guggenheim and uh, Pollock, and he's our go between for the two movies today. Could it could have used more decooning though? I would have liked yeah, to have seen some Val more Kilmer. Val Kilmer. I gotta you know? say, I don't know about anybody else. I was yeah. really glad to see Val Kilmer. I kind of miss him. I love him. that guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know if you've followed him at all anymore, but he had a he had a, like a, a surgery on his larynx. I don't think he he can oh, talk. Really? Yeah, he can't oh, talk. He can't talk anymore. It was man. Yeah, I like Val Kilmer. I do too. I'm one of the rare people who. Both really like Batman Forever, <laughs> and, <laughs> and like and, and and like his performance as Jim Morrison in The Doors. Oh, okay. oh yeah, <laughs> I can't stand The Doors period, so. just at all. Yeah. So you wouldn't watch a movie. The thing with Val Kilmer, it, it almost seemed like he was a uh, he wasn't an integral part of the movie. They could have left him out entirely, and it wouldn't have made a difference. I'll tell you exactly what he was in this movie. He was Iceman. <laughs> exactly he's yeah. the same yeah. character Just he's kind the, of a, he's the guy who he's the guy who villain-ish. is pretty good pretty good at yep. pretty good and uh jealous of the guy who just seems to just have yep. it all handed to him pollock yeah, is maverick true. and uh yep. and the kooning is <laughs> Iceman. I, I have to think that was intentional in the casting that ed harris was like i want I Iceman ice in this man. movie. i want the ice man <laughs> i wonder um i i I agree with you, Nate, when your second watch of the movie where you see how much more it is about Lee. I wonder if a a different director 
sees that and makes it makes that choice even more consciously mm. right and maybe that's where some of the, the disjunction that nate and ryan are seeing i see that it's a editing disjunction but you gotta think that harris was i mean harris's focus was on pollock yeah that's true not only because he's be, became pollock but now he's directing as pollock i mean this is all speculation obviously but how much did we miss yeah about what I think you're right, what the movie really focuses on and the greatest parts of the movie are this part of these parts where we see Lee Krasner, how much more have we missed? Mm -hmm. I think the death scene was an afterthought. It didn't seem to fit with the rest of the movie. I, I think a more effective ending would have been not to show the car crash, just show them pulling out of the party or away from the bar. And then having her get a phone call in Europe, mm. having it end with her on the yeah. phone. Yeah. The end with Lee. Yeah. Yeah. On the other end or standing at his grave when she comes back right. uh, at, at the, as a funeral. I think, I think that would have been a more powerful ending. I, th mm -hmm. I think it almost, one of you guys mentioned it earlier where it felt like they had to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're right. And there, there's a scene in that part that, I still am like, why are they showing it like this? Where he almost sees like, he feels like he's freeing himself as he like, yes, let's go. Yeah. Of yes. Like, what the in hell the car, is this? Right, yeah. He's we, drunk. It's yeah, a, yeah, a, right. a right. No, no moment <laughs> it, of clarity well, is happening a, here. It makes it, that scene makes it almost like it's a suicide. Yeah. And it almost mm. like it's uh, right? heroic. It's not the right choice. word. But yeah. And also something that's like, this is just the, the artist at work again. Right. You know? and which, yeah. which undercuts yeah. what the movie has been doing right. as far as like yes. showing the grind. I think, I, I think you're right that it, sh it, it would be a much more powerful ending to give Lee somehow the last word or the last look or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I, 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 I also think, though, that there's something potentially poetic about the fact that the movie loses its way when <laughs> Lee isn't there. Yeah, you know? yeah. Lee isn't there. Yeah. Like, oh, this movie, this movie's, this movie's throwaway at this point. Um, yeah, without yeah, yeah. Lee, Drew, I was wondering how often do you come back to this movie, and how have you felt like your viewings of it change over time? Um, I mean, I must have seen this movie hundreds of times. When I was in grad school, I mean, I worked at a dry cleaner and watched movies while I folded clothes <laughs> all day. So I, I would watch this movie like multiple times a day, multiple times a week. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it's a pretty regular staple in my life. My viewing has changed much like we've been talking about where when I first saw the movie, I was focused on Pollock, right? And that's the stage in life where I was. Right. And then as I grew and had kids and, and got a job that was a grind and, and stopped writing for a while. And then I would go back to that movie and I would be like, it's okay to have that support. You know, Marsh has been amazing. You know, my wife, you know, she loves when I write, even though she doesn't understand any of it, it excites her to see me creating again. And so, you know, um, five years ago when that sort of grind steady job went away, we made a conscious decision that I would try to get income based on how I create things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I went back to the Pollock and it was like, you know, a reassurance of like, mm -hmm. you can do the grind and you can create things and you can have support from someone who loves you and loves what you do, even though they don't understand what you do. And so, 
it's just a weird, you know, I, if I would objectively look at it, I would be like, this is a very strange movie for you to like go back to all and, 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 and have <laughs> it sort of comment on your progression of life from whatever, 22 years old till 45 years old, mm-hmm. like, you know, but it really has been like that grounding force. And to answer your question, my watching of it has changed as my life has changed. Right. Like I, it constantly has things that are echoing or commenting on my life as I continue through life. Do you still identify with Pollock? Do you identify with Lee more or does any, has any of that changed? Um, I, I still identify with Pollock. I identify with certain scenes of Pollock now. So like I identify with that. One of my favorite scenes is, you know, waking up, putting on his boots, putting on his coat, putting on his hat, grabbing the coffee you know i mean marcia wakes up before i do now mm-hmm. and she makes a pot of coffee and so like i go downstairs and i pour you know there's always a coffee waiting Mar- for me just for a li- marcia's your wife right yeah. D- that's yeah sorry yeah. marcia's my yeah. wife because yeah. marcia yeah. gave yeah. Yeah. Marcia yeah. no <laughs> yeah. yeah well i mean i guess you could say i mean i did find and marry someone named marcia because of <laughs> no yeah just kidding. <laughs> um dork i identify with that sort of like artist as the job, mm-hmm. right? You know, as I talk to other writers and I teach other writers, like, you know, we we always have this part of my class where it's like, it's time to kill the muse. The muse is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You don't write because of the muse. You write because you woke up today and wrote. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I now I identify with smaller certain scenes of Pollock, I think, than I do with anybody else in the movie. I guess after talking about it, I didn't hate the movie as much as I thought I did. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> that that happens a lot here i i think that said i did i did rent it and i don't know that i'll watch it again but yeah. i i can appreciate having mm-hmm. uh been taken out of my normal yeah. zone that i stay in for movies that i typically tend to gravitate towards yeah and i All think right. that happens a lot too where it's like i don't need to see it again but i do i don't regret that i watched it and nate do you have i mean you've known drew for a long time does this do you feel like you kind of see drew in this like it makes sense with drew do you get do you know him better or anything like that you talked about not that i know him better like i said the whole time i was watching it i said think i said this you know early on when we Mm -hmm. started talking about this is i've been to his poetry readings Mm -hmm. i've i've got the books i've seen what Mm -hmm. he produces from an artistic perspective and it doesn't surprise me that he's seen (laughs) this movie a a million times it really doesn't so yeah i'll take that as a compliment well, I, well, really I, appreciate you guys uh, being willing to talk and dig deep uh, into these movies. Yeah. Thanks for bringing these two specific movies to the table and yeah. uh, allowing us to give them the the sort of can we still be friends treatment. Yeah, and uh, ho- yeah. hopefully you guys feel like this was a, a fruitful thing for you both to do because it was yeah. really great for I, us. I, it was I, really great to hear. Yeah, and thanks for being guinea pigs in this new kind of uh, format yeah. and experience. You're welcome. I didn't know how we were going to tie Mash and Pollock together, but we did it. Bud Court. Bud Court. Bud Court was the answer. All right. Well, uh, Andrew, Nate, two beards, please. Before we let you go, do you guys want to talk a little bit about how our listeners can find out more about you guys? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Best place to go is our website, uh, twobeardsplease.com. We've got links to uh, all the major listening platforms as well as our socials out there. Uh, you can reach us on all of our social medias. We have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and 
TikTok. Yeah, yes. you guys are going to be TikTok. Yes, we are on TikTok. Soon, right? We are on the talk. Yes, at, <laughs> it's, it's all, all at, at two beards, please. At two beards, please. Yep. You guys got you guys got like merch, don't you? Yeah. Oh we yeah. Do. We've got find t- that on our website. T-shirts and stickers, and I. Th- yep. Yeah. We would do that, but I think we just know that the demand we couldn't meet the demand. We couldn't meet the demand. And so we, it was better just we to have, yeah, we, well, we haven't found we haven't <laughs> yeah. found a manufacturer who can do it at that scale. So, so. We, we haven't done right. that. And I mean, yet, you know, so. let's let's say our relationship with China isn't as good as it used to be. Yeah. So. We may have you overestimated can't. our demand a little bit. <laughs> We may have a lot of t-shirts. <laughs> but people are ordering them. Uh, we do have t-shirts that we actually source locally. And nice. uh, we have stickers, which are, I think, also made in the USA as well. So yep. that's kind of yep. what yeah, we, we wanted to do. We wanted to to buy locally as much as we could. And yeah. I work with a local business that's literally within a half mile of my house. So Great. That's awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much. I, we can't thank you yeah, enough for, it's for been coming a lot of on the fun. show. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having us, guys. All right. So, Ryan, let's go ahead and uh, let's talk about what's what we're going to do for the next episode. We're we're kind of we're going to give this at least a we're, two we're, a two yeah. episode run. <laughs> That's we're right. Try it for two episodes. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we're just thinking like maybe trying something new, bringing some different people into it, getting kind of like different types of conversation about film, and and uh, our, our next one is is going to. Hits a little closer to home. Very, very much closer you. to home. Yeah, for me. Uh, we're going to be talking to my wife, Kelsey. And uh, we're going to be talking about her favorite movie. Right now, I'm fairly certain that we're going to be talking about Tree of Life. But we also might be talking about some other movies that have been favorites along the yeah. way. And kind of like, you know, what does it mean for a movie to be a favorite at a certain point in your life? And uh, it'll be great. I'm, I'm really I'm, excited to talk. We've wanted to talk about Tree of Life. That's what I was going to say. This is very good on multiple levels because, yeah, Tree of Life. But more than that, I mean, we get to – I get to talk to Kelsey. I haven't talked to Kelsey. I don't remember the last time I talked to Kelsey, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, COVID's kept everybody very much apart. And, and, uh, yeah, you you just – your paths don't cross like they used to, so – and my, my plan is to kind of treat this like uh, I'm going to see myself as kind of a marriage therapist, I think. Okay. And you guys are going to sit across from me. That's and, how I uh, sold this to Kelsey. <laughs> That's what I said. So I'm glad that you're on and I'm, board. And I'm fully that. qualified for this, by the way. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And we're just using Tree of Life as kind of a, an entry yeah, point. Yeah, right. Into, uh, all, all, <laughs> so you can... <laughs> if she hears this, into this, everything is going about to make, this is not going to put her at ease for coming on the show. <laughs> I'll, oh, I kid, I kid. Uh, you do. Yeah, kid. but we... No, I, not that at all. I, I want to have a good Tree of Life conversation. I think Kelsey's going to bring a lot of great insight into a movie that is seriously so full of insights. Like, you could just yeah. go so deep on that movie. Exactly, so. yeah. And we, we talked about it briefly on our decade end list. It was it topped both, both of our of lists ours. for, yeah. for the best, our favorite movies of the decade. It'll be great to talk to Kelsey about it. And honestly, you know, if you go back to our archives, Kelsey, her name does come up quite a bit because oh, yeah. you, you seem to watch almost all your movies that we talk about with her. And you always say, oh, and I was talking to Kelsey about this and or Kelsey said this. And, you know, so mm-hmm. who, for She's our listeners, thoughts. for our yeah. listeners who don't know us mm-hmm. and don't know, I mean, who is this Kelsey? Right. She sounds amazing. So we're going to work, you know, we're, we're going to yeah. pull back the curtain a little bit. A little bit. That. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really fun to kind of go through with people and talk about how their favorite movies have changed over the years. Too, yeah. You know, and I know Kelsey's got kind of specific thoughts about why movies have been favorites at certain points. Like, It's mapped out. Mm-hmm. Kind of like um, John Nash and beautiful, beautiful mind. Right. It has it all mapped out. Yeah. So I'm her Jennifer Connelly. Then, I guess in, in that, that situation, situation, in that situation, the script has flipped. Yeah. yeah. And it should. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. 
It's 2021. Yeah. About time. Yeah. Oh, boy. 2021. <laughs> 2021. Someone else gets to be the John Nash now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the slogan. <laughs> we need new John Nashes. <laughs> uh. All right. So, you know, we talked about a lot in this episode. Man. Two movies, boy, did first we. of all. Two guests, Two guests who had never been on the podcast before. Yeah. And so um, there's got to be lots of thoughts floating around in our listeners' Absolutely. minds. I'm sure of it. So uh, we want to hear those thoughts uh, along with any thoughts you have on any of our past episodes. Definitely your thoughts on our next episode, Tree of Life. And if you have not seen the best movie of the last decade. <laughs> objectively, Objectively yeah. at you this point. Go check it out. Yeah. Definitely. I, I mean, I'm sure one of the things on people's minds is what new ground could they possibly break? I feel because like... Because it is happening every episode they have i imagine our listeners are just i I they have to be thinking i feel like i'm just falling when i listen to this because there's just no ground underneath this podcast anymore it's being broken although i i also hope that they feel like they are being tenderly caught right are very uh, right you know capable we're like the the when you skydive the guys that you skydive with that you're strapped tandem jumping is that what what, do they have a name those people no. That you strap yourself to when you jump out of an oh, airplane? All We have words for so much. We don't have a word for that. But I will say, though, that at, at least in slang terms, this analogy is so perfect to our podcast, you could start calling that person CWSBF. That's true. The CWSBF of skydiving. Of, of skydiving. Yeah, right. <clears throat> because, again, we are breaking so much ground that it just feels like you're falling. And I know that, but you're safe. But we got you. You are safe. We got you. You are strapped to us. We are professionals. We've done this never before, 90, but now. 90, you're right. Nobody's done it. But if anybody's ready, we are. Yeah. So, you know, even though nothing else is certain about this podcast, you what is certain is that we want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. And, and uh, so there's a lot of ways to do that. And those haven't changed. No, we do not have a TikTok. No. We probably never will. I don't will. see it happening. I mean, we can only break so much ground. We, we, we can't break social media ground. That's We won't go there. For us, we kind of uh, in, infringe on the integrity of the other ground we're breaking. Right. And, I mean, do you want to get dragged into congressional hearings? Because you know that would happen. Oh, yeah. If we started okay. breaking social media ground. No. no. I know. I mean, we've been over it with Mark. He tells it's us not, about it all the time. It's the downside to that job. Mm-hmm. You know, if you talk to Mark, he'll say, Facebook, it's great to be the CEO of. I love the money. Love the money. The Vacation money, time. Power is pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Business cards. Uh, that's cool, too. Um, it's the congressional hearings. We've heard about it so much from him, we feel like we, we've been through it. And we have been in the way that he's really kind of relied on us. We did some some dry runs. Some, some, some mock. And, they're not quite debates, but no. mock hearings. Yeah, that's what he calls them. Yeah. And it's up. It's up to you to watch those and see if you think that we did a good job preparing. We we didn't. It was terrible. <laughs> it was it wasn't bad. very good. But in fairness to us, we thought the Congress people would know what the internet was. Right. So the questions we prepped him for, yeah, were, kind of assumed a baseline understanding, which we were way wrong on. Yeah. You want to talk about not having a ground? There was no, no bottom no. to the lack of knowledge. Right. Um, right. So that's on them. More than us, for More sure. Than us. Yeah. Um, it's kind of on Mark. It, it is on Mark. You know because. That he took the job. He said he didn't fault us. Like, we were great. I think he, he said, you guys were great. Yeah, it's hard to know how genuine he was when he said that. Well, over over text. But, right. Or Messenger. He, he really demands that we use Messenger. I Facebook know. Messenger. But anyway, we're on Instagram, which is a Facebook company. Um, uh, can we still can be, we be friends, friends pod? pod? We are on Facebook.com, uh, which is a Facebook company. Um, 
Can We Still Be Friends podcast. Yep. There. And we've got our website, canwestillbefriends.net. You can email us. The, the address is feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. Uh, you can call our voicemail. Just leave your voicemail messages at 847-306-9532. Yeah. And if you want to, you know, another way you can leave an audio message is uh, just use that voice recorder app on your phone and uh, record it there. Package that thing up and send it off to us in an email. Mm-hmm. Well, this was this was fun. Th- this was I'm fun. Glad we're, I'm glad we're stepping out of our comfort zone. Once again, we pulled it off. I mean, it's up to our listeners to decide if we undeniably. actually really did. Pull it. Well, well, oh, yeah, you're right. Undeni- undeniably, we pulled it off. But if you if you if you somehow think we didn't, the beards did a lot of heavy lifting tonight. <laughs> they really did. They really did. Those beards. Uh, yeah. Um, but, but check out their podcast, Two yeah. Beards, please. And uh, yeah, we we appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.